We'll come to the end of Romans. If you have a Bible, go to the very last chapter and we'll look at the last three verses of Romans chapter 16. There's an outline uh, tucked away in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits. You can access those. Um, Those are online as well. And uh, uh, please keep praying for the Internet uh, ministry. I get emails. I had two or three this week, one from a pastor in the Philippines, one from a pastor in New New York or somewhere back there, and a couple others from around the country. So uh, pray that God will use that on a wider scale. And uh, the audio messages also are on the church website. This morning, Romans 16:25 to 27, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be the glory forever. Amen. Well, the question is, how do you end a book like Romans, a book that's been called uh, the greatest letter ever written? It's been called by many the greatest book in the entire Bible. So how do you bring this thing in for a landing, you know, after you've been flying as high as as we have in Romans. Normally, Paul ends his letters with a benediction. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 23, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And that's a very common way he ends his letters. We saw a benediction like that in Romans 16, 20, last time as we looked at verses 17 to 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And Um, As I mentioned, verse 24, which is a similar verse, was probably not in the original text. But um, now, Paul, after he gives these final greetings from his friends in Corinth, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he's thinking back over his letter and all that he's written, and uh, he is caught up as he just wells up in praise to God for the glory of of the gospel and uh, how it goes out to all the nations. And he ends with this kind of slam the symbols together crescendo of praise to our great and glorious God. The problem is, for me as a Bible teacher, you sit and stare at these verses for a few hours and you're going, how does all this fit together grammatically? In other words, what is the flow of thought here? And if you're an English teacher and you want a difficult assignment for your students, ask them to diagram Romans 16:25 to 27, because Paul just piles up phrase after phrase after phrase, and in the Greek text, there's no verb. So he just kind of ends it. And uh, as you're looking at it, I mean, they're wonderful phrases, but it is difficult. But you realize that what Paul is doing is just swept away with his emotions over what he has written, he sums up, basically, the letter. Uh, 
Two commentators, Sandy and Hedlum, they wrote a single commentary. They say this, The doxology sums up all the great ideas of the epistle, the power of the gospel, which St. Paul was commissioned to preach, the revelation of it in the eternal purpose of God, its contents, faith, uh, its sphere, all the nations of the earth, its author, the only one, uh, or the one wise God whose wisdom is thus vindicated. All these thoughts had been continually dwelt on. And they suggest that maybe what happened at this point is that Paul reached over and took the quill from Tertius, his secretary who was writing all of this down, and perhaps Paul just wrote all of this out in his own hand as he brings his argument to this eloquent conclusion. And we saw a similar outburst of praise at the end of chapter 11, if you'll recall, uh, there in verses 33 to 36, as Paul thought on the glorious truths of the gospel and uh, what he had written in 9, 10, and 11, he exclaimed, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And then he cites from Isaiah, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who was first given to him that it may be pay, might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And we saw there, as we see here, that the goal of all theology is doxology. In other words, The goal of theology isn't so that you can write a a brilliant paper in a seminary class or get together with other theologically minded people and speculate on what this might mean. Or the goal of theology isn't so that you can debate someone else and win your argument. The goal of theology is worship. So that when you're caught up with these wonderful truths of who God is, it just blows you away. And, and that's what's happening with Paul here at the end. He's just blown away with God and the greatness of God and the gospel and the marvel of it all. And he bows before him to glorify him. And Paul is reminding us here that the goal of the gospel is not about us, primarily. It's not about us. It's about God And His glory. Now, of course, we should be certainly happy and exuberant that God has rescued us from our sin and judgment and has uh, reconciled us to Himself. But Paul is saying here that the ultimate goal of the gospel is the uh, God's eternal glory. And so we can sum up our text by saying that the goal of the gospel is that we would glorify the only wise God through Jesus Christ. And the way we do that is as we live in obedient faith and proclaim Him to the nations. Now, most all of you, if you've been around at all, are familiar with the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the simple answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we kind of stumble over 
Great. What's what's glory? What does it mean to glorify God? Well, in very simple street language, it means that you make God look good as God really is. Or uh, Dwight Pentecost says glory is displayed excellence. So as we display the excellence of God, he is glorified. Uh, Wayne Grudem puts it this way. God's glory, he says, is the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. Or another theologian, Robert uh, Raymond, uh, says God's glory is the sum total of all his attributes as well as any one of his attributes. Or John Piper uh, defines God's glory as the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. The infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. And, of course, we cannot display that fully because we are finite creatures, but that is our aim to display God's infinite beauty his greatness, his manifold perfections. Now, when you get it in mind that the gospel is not about us, but it's about God's glory, it's a practical and a very fundamental paradigm shift. Because, frankly, we often and most often hear, the gospel is all about you. You lack peace, God will give you peace. You, you need joy, God will give you joy. You know, you need a happy marriage. God will give you a happy marriage. All of those things are true, but that's not the point. The point is, God saves us to glorify Him. Now, we glorify Him, of course, when we have happy marriages and joy and peace and all of that. But you see, if we think it's about us, we don't have an adequate view of suffering. Because all of us are going to suffer, and all of us are going to die. And if your view of the gospel ends with you, that's not enough. It's got to end with God and His glory, so that in your suffering, as we saw in chapter 5, you can exult in your suffering, and that's because you're bringing glory to God, and we do that even through our death. Paul, as he faced possible martyrdom in Philippians 1.20, said that, His goal is that Christ will now, even now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, John Piper has often pointed out, our happiness is not at odds with God's glory because God, as Piper puts it, is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in God. And so as we drink deeply of God and all of the blessings that He has bestowed on us, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and so on, as we get a glimpse of what Piper calls His infinite beauty and the greatness of His manifold perfections, we are happy and then we glorify God. And you can't help it. When you get caught up with a vision like that of the greatness of God, It just spills over in praise. You ever stood at the Grand Canyon? Maybe you were by yourself, and there is a fabulous sunset. And you're standing next to a perfect stranger. Do you keep quiet? No. You go, wow, look at that. You know, you've got to share the beauty, don't you? Why? It's just 
nature. You, you just cannot keep quiet when you see the glory that God created there in that beautiful Grand Canyon sunset. Well, when you see the glory of our great God and how beautiful he is, and you're by a stranger, you just go, wow, let me tell you something. And you glorify God by telling others about his, his beauty. You spontaneously praise him. And Paul is saying that's the goal of the gospel. What he's been writing about for 16 chapters is that there would be glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now, let me break our text for sake of teaching into three parts. First of all, to glorify God, and this will be the main part we focus on, Paul says we need to be established according to the gospel and live in obedient faith. In other words, you have to believe the gospel before you can glorify God with your life, and you have to obey Jesus Christ and the gospel so that others will see how great God is through your life. Uh, Five aspects of being established in the gospel that Paul brings out here. First of all, he makes the point that God has the power to establish us according to the gospel. See the first phrase? Now to him who is able to establish you according to the gospel. And the gospel is, of course, the good news that while we were yet sinners, we saw this in Romans 5, God sent his only begotten son to bear the penalty that we deserve. And even better news than that is we don't have to earn that salvation. We don't have to work for it all of our lives and hope maybe we qualify. God offers that gift freely to all who will simply receive it, to all who will turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. Now, Paul calls it here, my gospel. And he doesn't mean his gospel is different than the apostles' gospel or Jesus' gospel, but I think Paul is focusing on this. Paul received the gospel directly by revelation from God. He shares that in Galatians 1. And then, years later, he went up to Jerusalem. He met with the so-called had honchos there, the, the big guns, and he submitted to them the gospel he preached, and they kind of put their stamp on it and said, that's the same gospel we preached, Paul. And so Paul here, when he says, my gospel, there's a, an element of certainty about it, that Paul was sure of this message because Jesus Christ revealed it to him, and he's telling it to us. And he says that God is able to establish you according to my gospel. And some you might have a version that reads, strengthen you. That's equally a good translation. Um, originally, according to uh, the theological dictionary of the New Testament, the word meant to fix something so that it stands upright and immovable. And that same article said, the effect or aim of the strengthening is the impregnability of Christian faith in spite of the troubles which have to be endured. Now, in view of what we just saw last time in verses 17 to 20, you're going to have to endure and resist false teaching. And so, when Paul talks about that now God is able to establish you, he means at the very least that you'll have the strength to endure uh, and resist false teaching, not fall prey to them. Uh, C.E.B. Cranfield, a uh, commentator, says... 
that it means that God is able to confirm you in your belief in, in your obedience to the gospel. Now, there are two sides in this being established or strengthened or confirmed, a human side and a divine side. On the human side, Paul used the word, the same word, in Romans 1.11, where he said that, For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be, here's the word, established. So, humanly speaking, Paul wanted to visit Rome, teach them the truths of God's Word, so that God would use it to establish them. But there the focus is on the human side. Um, <clears throat> Peter uses or emphasizes the human side. At the end of Second Peter, he uses the noun related to this verb. When he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what we saw last week in Romans uh, 16, 17 to 20. And, and fall from your own, here's the word, steadfastness, your confirmation, your strength in the gospel. But, by way of contrast, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Sounds like the end of Romans, doesn't it? And that's very similar. And so Peter is saying, as we are steadfast in the gospel, as we are established in the gospel, stand firm against false teaching, as we obey Jesus Christ, God will be glorified through our lives. Now, here in verse 25, Paul is emphasizing the divine side of it, um, the Godward side, that God is able to establish us according to the gospel. It's similar to what he wrote in Philippians 1.6, where he said, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, through the gospel, uh, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And since it took God's resurrection power to raise us from spiritual death to spiritual life, that same power that works in us will keep us unto the day of eternity and help us to live lives that glorify Him. Now, it perhaps goes without saying, but let me say it. Before you can be established in the gospel, you have to believe in the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you will be saved. And... If you've never turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, then you can't be established in the gospel because you haven't believed in the gospel. The gospel, as I said, is the good news that Christ died for sinners. And uh, frankly, one of the things that you have to repent of to come to Christ is your good works. Because you see, before you come to Christ... You're trusting your good works. You're saying, I'm good enough, man. I mean, I'm, I'm a sinner, yeah, but I'm not a terrible sinner. And I can contribute my good works, and that'll help. And someday, God will let me into heaven because I've been a good person. That is sin. To believe that, because it's pride. And there will be no proud people in heaven. And remember what Jesus said? I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. And so you have to repent of that. And the good news is, 
when you see, uh-oh, I am a guilty sinner, we sang it, Jesus is the rescue for sinners. Amen. That's what He came to do, is to save sinners. And when, you, when God opens your eyes to see it, you run to Christ, you trust in Him, and you take no credit for it because all you're doing is taking a gift you didn't deserve. Who can take credit for that? And He gets all the glory. We boast in Him. Once you've come to Christ, you don't leave that behind. You don't leave the gospel behind and say, well, that was what I did back then. Every day you should meditate on the gospel. I was a sinner. I was lost. I was bound for hell. And Jesus intervened and he saved me. And that should just cause your heart to well up in thanks and praise to God every single day. And with John Newton, sing it over and over again. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a sinner like me. Glory to God. Then the second thing Paul says here about God establishing us is he does it through the preaching of Jesus Christ. Um, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now that could mean two things grammatically. It could refer to the preaching that Jesus did when he was on earth, or the preaching that Jesus did through Paul, or it could refer, secondly, to Jesus is the one preached. In other words, he is the object of that uh, genitive of. And what Paul means is he establishes you through Christ being preached to you. And I think that's probably what he means, because in 1 Corinthians... 123, Paul said, but we preach Christ crucified. That was Paul's message. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he put it this way. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as his bondservants for Jesus' sake. As your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And then in Colossians 1:28, Paul explained his whole ministry by saying, we proclaim him, Christ admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now, maybe you're thinking, wow, that sounds kind of like a Johnny OneNote thing, preaching Christ. What about practical issues? I mean, you know, I got a marriage that needs help, or I I got financial issues, or I got this problem or that problem. Well, it's interesting. In in 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul said, we determined... To, to uh, know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then you keep reading in 1 Corinthians. And he talks about how to deal with a sinning man in the church in chapter 5. He talks about lawsuits between believers in chapter 6. Moral purity in chapter 6. Marriage, singleness, divorce, remarriage, all of that in chapter 7. He gets very practical So when he says that we preach Christ, what he means is we bring the lordship of Jesus Christ to bear on every single issue in life. Now, whatever the issue is, it has to do with Jesus as Savior and Lord. In other words, Paul wasn't just dispensing helpful hints for happy living that could have gone into Reader's Digest and everyone would have gone, oh, that's a nice article, but there's no mention of Jesus. Paul couldn't have done that. 
He related Christ as Lord to every single situation that he encountered or thought about. And maybe you're thinking, well, all right, that's fine for you preachers, but I'm not a preacher. You don't have to be a preacher to preach Christ. I encourage you, preach Christ to your own soul every morning when you open your Bible. I hope you do that. You get up and open your Bible and begin to read. And and just ask yourself again, what does this text tell me about Jesus Christ? And how does it apply to me as I submit my life to the Lordship of Jesus? And so you preach Christ to yourself. His love, His grace, His authority, His promises, His his gospel. Um, If you get an opportunity to talk to others about Christ, preach Christ. Now, I don't mean, you know, get up on your soapbox and yell at Him and all that. I just mean keep focused on Jesus because He's the issue in salvation. And when you share Christ, people will bring up all these extraneous issues, you know. Well, I believe in evolution. Or, you know, well, what about all the, the suffering in the world? How can a good God allow that? Or what about all the heathen who have never heard? And, you know, they got all their questions. Uh, what about all the errors in the Bible and so on? And if you're interested, I dealt with that in some messages a couple of summers ago on how to share your faith. But basically, here's the answer. You might talk to it briefly, but bring it back to Christ as soon as you can. Bring it back to Jesus. You can ask them, have you ever read the Bible, especially the Gospels, and asked yourself, who is Jesus Christ? We're going to see that right off the bat in John chapter 1. John is telling us who Jesus is. And that's crucial. It's the most crucial question. Because if Jesus is the Lord sent from heaven, took on human flesh, died for our sins, everything else in life follows. If he's not, he's not risen from the dead, go eat, drink, be merry, have a great life. It's not true. And so you can ask them, have you ever studied the evidence for the resurrection of Christ? Or a thing I like to say to people who raise these issues with me is, are you telling me that if I can give you a good answer for evolution, that you're going to repent of your sins and follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You know, they never say, yeah, that's the only issue. Answer it for me. I'm ready to follow Jesus. No, it's a smokescreen, you see. And you've got to go for the jugular, which is, you're a sinner, and you need a Savior. And guess what? Jesus is the only Savior. So, preach Christ. Bring it back to, to Jesus. The third thing Paul says here about God establishing us according uh, to the Gospel is, he does it according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. Now, again, grammatically, it's hard to figure out. Is that a third means that establishes us, parallel with my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, or is it modifying those two earlier phrases? And I don't know. If, if he's modifying it, then the mystery is the gospel. Uh, The gospel that God planned before the foundation of the world and now is made manifest. Now, you have to understand, in the New Testament, mystery doesn't mean what we think of. You know, we think of a whodunit or we think of some puzzle you have to solve. In the Bible, a mystery is that which was previously hidden 
and now God has revealed it. Um, <clears throat> if Paul is referring to the gospel, then that raises a question. How was the gospel hidden in long ages past? Because no sooner had Adam and Eve sinned, then what did God do? He slew an animal and he clothed them with the animal skins. That's the gospel, isn't it, in picture form? You guys sinned. Your fig leaves, your good works aren't enough to cover your sin. You need a substitute, and that requires the shedding of blood, and that covers your your nakedness, your sin. There was the gospel. And then in Genesis 3, in case they missed it, God said, the seed of the woman, Jesus, will crush the seed of the serpent, Satan. There's the gospel. You get to Genesis chapter 12, and God says to Abraham, um, your, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul says in Galatians, the seed of Abraham is Jesus. And so there's the gospel. And you get to Genesis 22, and God tells Abraham that strange command, I want you to take your son, and then God adds, your only son. He had two sons. He had Ishmael. He had Isaac. No, no. This is your unique son. Your only son. And take him to Mount Moriah, which is probably the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and offer him as a burnt offering. What a command. Why did God do that? It's a picture of the gospel. And of course, at the last minute, God provided the ram as the substitute. Another picture of the gospel. But it was a picture of what God would do in sending His only Son to this earth to bear our sin. And, and so, you got the gospel. And then you have the whole Jewish sacrificial system. A picture again of substitution and the shedding of blood to cover the sin of the one who, who lays his hand on that lamb. And then you get to John 1.29 where John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as Jesus comes on the scene. So you have to ask the question, well, if, if that was revealed in the Old Testament, then why does Paul say it's been kept secret for long ages past? Maybe two answers to this. First of all, we can look back now with perfect clarity. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, And go, oh yeah, yeah, there's the gospel. There it is, there it is, there it is. But they were kind of navigating in the fog at that time, and they could not see it as clearly. You see this with the disciples. I'm in my uh, part of my quiet time. I'm reading through Matthew right now. And four times in Matthew, Jesus announces very plainly, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and scribes, and they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to rise again from the dead on the third day. And you know what the disciples' response was? Huh? <laughs> they didn't get it. They didn't get it. It just went right by them. Now, these were men that had believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but they didn't understand that Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised again until after the fact. Uh, Peter mentions in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, As to this salvation, 
The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, Peter's saying the Old Testament prophets were inspired to write all this stuff, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, you know, all of the, the passages there about the suffering servant. They wrote it, but they didn't get it. Totally. We get it. It's now manifest because we're looking back. They were looking forward. There may be a second answer, though, and that is Paul may be looking at a further aspect of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, and that is namely that the gospel is not only for the Jew, but it's going out to the Gentile. Now, that much was revealed in the Old Testament because Isaiah said there will be a highway from Egypt to Jerusalem, and from Assyria to Jerusalem. They're all going to come, all the nations. So that part was revealed, but what wasn't revealed is they're going to be on an equal standing with the Jews. And remember, that was a theme here in Romans. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul explained, well, why are all the Jews rejecting Christ? And why are all the Gentiles coming in? And he warned the Gentiles, don't get proud. You've been grafted into the Jews. But the mystery was, and Paul explains this in Ephesians 3, that we would be on equal footing with the Jews in the gospel. And that there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free and so on. We're all one in Christ. That had not been revealed in the Old Testament. And and that, of course, was a stumbling block to the racially proud Jews, but it's good news and it establishes you and me Gentiles, as we realize this mystery that God had hidden and now has made known that we and all peoples who believe have equal standing before God in our Savior Jesus Christ. A fourth way that God establishes us, Paul goes on to say, is by the scriptures of the prophets. And again, that raises the question, How could the gospel be kept secret in the ages past and at the same time be revealed uh, in the scriptures of the prophets? And I just kind of answered that for you. And that is, there is this sense in which we see it clearly, but they did not. Remember on the Emmaus Road, Jesus is walking along with those two men, and they're sad. And he says, why are you guys sad? This is after Jesus is risen. And they didn't recognize Jesus. And they said, well, what do you mean? Why are we sad? Don't you know what just went on in Jerusalem? And then Jesus begins to talk with them. And he opens their eyes to see that the Christ first had to suffer and then enter into his glory. And then the same thing at the end of Luke 24, when he meets with the apostles after the resurrection, beginning with Moses and all the prophets and so on, he explains to them all the things in the Scripture concerning himself, how he had to suffer and die and be raised again. And then they saw it after the fact. Um, So in that way, the Old Testament prophets uh, reveal the gospel. And if you missed it, go back and review or or look at for the first time the message I gave on uh, Romans 15.4, where... um, why you need the Old Testament. And I emphasize there, you need the Old Testament because it points you to Christ. 
And I gave you some guidelines there, but just in a nutshell, as you read the Old Testament, just ask yourself, again, what does this tell me about Christ? And about His sufferings, and about His glory, and so on. Uh, So, God establishes us through the Scriptures of the prophets. And then, one final thing, Paul shows that we know that God has established us in the Gospel when we believe it, and live in obedience to Jesus Christ. He says the gospel leads to the obedience of faith there at the end of verse 26. Now that phrase, and I don't have time, by the way, to do this, but if I had time, I could go and show you how the early verses of Romans 1 are very parallel to the end verses of Romans 16. Paul kind of bookends both sides with the same truth. But in Romans 1.5, we saw that phrase, obedience of faith. Paul said his aim as an apostle was to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Now, Paul does not mean there, as some have mistakenly taken it, that you must add works to your faith in order to be saved. That would totally undo what we saw in Romans 3 and 4, where Paul made the point, we're saved by faith in Christ alone, not by any works that we do. Rather, what Paul means is this. Genuine saving faith always changes a person's life. Always. And it results in a life of obedience to Christ. Not perfectly. None of us obey perfectly. But direction-wise, All of us who get saved want to obey and please Jesus. That's just inevitable. And if you don't, Jesus warned and said, Many will say, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name. We prophesied in your name. He's going to say, sorry. You know, you are disobedient. I didn't know you. James makes the same point. Faith without works is dead faith. It's not saving faith. It's just the faith of demons. They believe in God and... They're, they're not saved. John, in 1 John 2, 3, puts it this way. By this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Now, again, he's not talking perfectly. We all stumble. We all fail. But what's the bent of your heart? Do you desire to please God? Do you desire to obey Christ beginning on your thought level? Because all the words you speak come out of your heart. Uh, All the actions that you do come out of your heart, so you have to please Him on the thought or the heart level. And so if you want your life to glorify God, and you want to be established according to the Gospel, you have to live in obedient faith so that people look at you and get some glimpse of the Lord Jesus. Now, the other two points I'll just touch on here that uh, we want to bring up from our text. And that is, secondly, Paul says... To glorify God, not only must we be established according to the gospel and live in obedient faith, but also we have to proclaim Jesus to the nations and the gospel to the nations. In the middle part of verse 26 there, according to the commandment of the eternal God, Paul says, has been made known to all the nations. Now, some understand that word commandment there to refer to the Great Commission, and maybe it does, but I think um, probably Douglas Moo is correct when he says it refers to God's own determination uh, 
to make known the mystery at the time that he did. In other words, in the fullness of time, God determined to send forth Jesus, and we have the gospel. I don't understand why God, in his wisdom, uh, bottled, up, <clears throat> bottled up the gospel for 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ with the Jews alone, but he did. But now that Jesus came and gave the Great Commission, we have the command to take the gospel to the nations. But, you know, even again, the apostles knew that. They heard the Great Commission. But when Peter <clears throat> got that um, invitation to go to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile, and he preaches to him in Acts 10, he has to defend himself. He's called on the carpet by the apostles saying, what are you doing going in the home of a Gentile? They didn't get it yet. And in order to get it, God had to save this radical Jew named Saul of Tarsus. And in God's humor and irony, he takes this Jew of Jews and says, you're my man, go to the Gentiles. And thankfully, Paul was obedient, and that's why most of us here, most of us are Gentiles. That's why we're here, is because Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, when Paul says <clears throat> there that the gospel has been made known to all the nations, he is not saying the missionary task is done. Um, he, we saw in chapter 15, he said, I'm going to Spain. It hasn't been done yet in Spain. I'm going there. I'm going to take the gospel there. And as we know now, it hasn't been done around the world yet. There are still unreached people groups that we need to take it to. I think rather he is emphasizing, as Douglas Moo again says, the universal applicability of the gospel. That is, God is glorified and he will be glorified around his throne someday. We see this in Revelation 5 when people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation are gathered there singing, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And uh, so our task is the nations. And then, finally, the goal of the gospel is that we would glorify the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever. And Paul here marvels in the end, in the final verse, at the wisdom of God, and it carries us back. Remember Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, when Paul says in verse 27 of our text, to the only wise God, he doesn't mean there are some dumb gods out there and God's the only wise one. What he means is God is the only God, and in addition, God is infinitely wise. There is no God like God. God is the only God, and he is infinitely wise. And what that means is no human being could have cooked up the plan of salvation. It isn't a bunch of philosophers or theologians who got together and said, let's see, how can we be saved? I know, I got an idea. Yeah, yeah, and then they refined it and now we got the gospel. No, the gospel was revealed by the only wise God. And uh, he planned it. He revealed it according to his infinite wisdom and it will bring Him eternal glory as the saints gather before His throne throughout the ages and say, wow, praise God, glory to God for the gospel. Uh, Stephen Charnock was a Puritan, and in typical Puritan fashion, he wrote two long volumes on the existence 
and attributes of God. It's worth reading, although not easy reading. And he spends over a hundred pages on verse 27 of Romans 16, telling about the wisdom of God. And uh, I'm only going to give you one sentence out of a hundred and some odd pages. He says this, No man or angel could imagine how two natures so distant as the divine and human should be united, speaking of Jesus taking on human flesh. How the same person should be criminal and righteous. He's referring there to the fact Christ was made sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him, but He is also pure and righteous. How a just God should have a satisfaction and sinful man a justification. How the sin should be punished and the sinner saved. See, the marvel of the wisdom of God in the Gospel is what he's talking about. And God's plan of salvation in the Gospel reveals His infinite wisdom. And in eternity, you know what we're going to spend eternity doing? I just referred to it. We'll be gathered before the throne, glorifying God for His wisdom and His might and His power and His, His majesty in the Gospel as the Lamb who was slain will be there on the throne. And the application of that for us, if I could just give you a gentle chiding, I know I'm going to run over here. Our worship on Sunday needs to reflect what we're going to be doing through all eternity. And it burdens my heart for myself, but also for our body. When I sit here during worship and I see people gone, and they're not singing, and we're singing about, we lift our hands, and they're not lifting their hands. And we sing about, we rejoice in you, and they're not rejoicing. And they're looking at their watch, and they're reading the bulletin, and they're checking their email on their cell phone. And all this is going on when we should be rejoicing and glorifying our God. Now, I realize we're not going to get heavenly here, but couldn't we do better? I mean, couldn't you do better? Couldn't I do better? I think I can. And I want it so that when some visitor off the street walks in here during our worship time, he goes, whoa, this place is different. These people believe in God. I can tell it. These people are worshiping a great God. Listen to them. Look at them. We can improve, okay? Enough of that sermon, but I just... Ah, I want that for us. I want that for us, okay? Now, last service when I said that, somebody said amen. And I said, yeah, that's the last word in our text. Amen. <clears throat> amen. Paul ends by saying amen. You know what amen means? This is true. Jesus would say, amen, amen, I say to you. Verily, verily in the King James. Truly, truly in the NASB. It means, it is so. And what Paul is saying when he says amen is all of this gospel that I've presented to you for these 16 chapters, it's the truth and you can stake your life on it. You can stake your eternity on it. It is true. And so the goal of the gospel is that we would glorify the only wise God through Jesus Christ as we live in obedient faith so that our lives don't detract from him and as we proclaim him to the nations. Amen. So be it. Let's pray. Dear Father.